privileged tonight to wrap up this series with probably the most important question of all. Because really this is the culmination of what we are doing this series for. And I want to remind you what the purpose of this series has been. It's been to help believers become thinkers. I hope that after these seven weeks, if you've been a Christian for a number of years, you've been able to come to a place in your faith like I have where you can see that we have incredible confidence, not only in the God that we serve, but in the way that He has demonstrated Himself to the world around us. But then there's also been a space which we believe is really important as a church, is we don't just exist for ourselves, we exist for those that have big questions around God and are, are looking for big answers to this life. And I really think tonight, to be human is to ask questions. And tonight, our hope has been over these seven weeks, and perhaps tonight will be the, the crossing point for you, is that we want to make thinkers into believers. It's very important. So we want to remove any possible obstacle you might have and help you along this journey to coming, come to faith in Jesus Christ. And tonight, friends, we are looking at this massive question of why should I believe in heaven and hell? And tonight, my tone is not one of uh, flippancy or, or humor. I want you to know that this matter is deadly serious. It's a matter of life and death, or put it this way, a matter of life after death. And so there's an urgency tonight in what I'm going to be sharing with you. Because really, this is the culmination of what we're wanting to achieve, is to present to you the reason why Jesus matters so much is because of this thing called the afterlife. And so I want to start off there tonight. I want to start off by saying the Christian faith only makes sense if you see it as a faith that has a future orientation. In other words, the Christian faith does not exist for this life only. So it's not there to make you feel good or kind of help you through some of the Life's uh, speed bumps. No, no. The Christian faith actually starts by getting you to think about the thing that we don't like to think about. It's called death. Can I say to you as a pharmacist and as a pastor, the one thing that people avoid or the one thing that people never like to think about is this thing called death. We will do whatever we can to avoid it. We'll fill up our time with hobbies with fitness, with diets, with facelifts, all sorts of things to try and help us avoid or to cheat this question of death and what happens after it. And I want to say to you tonight that the Christian faith confronts you immediately with this statement. And it's that you are not ready to live until you are ready to die. You're not ready to live until you are ready to die. My friend, it has been the most awe-inspiring and personally shaking moment that when you talk to somebody on their deathbed, what was so important to them before that moment suddenly gets reframed. Not so? Suddenly the big questions about life start rushing in at a pace and we are so unprepared for it. And tonight, our heart is that none of you here will be unprepared for that be unprepared for that moment. Because we want to point out that as Christians, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 19, 
He says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. No, no, my friend, even in the most famous scripture of the Bible, John chapter 316, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Why? So that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The very thing Jesus came to do was not to make this world everything. No, no. He came to give us eternal life. In other words, he had to conquer the second most powerful thing in the universe under God, and it's called death. No matter how hard you try and get around it, death is coming. No matter how many supplements you take, death is coming. And Jesus had to come to conquer sin and its result, death. And tonight, this is what's on offer to the world. And what Jesus came was to bring eternal life. And we need to know that what we decide in this life, how we choose to live, it has eternal consequences. It does. And so this is what we want to tackle tonight. The first is there's, there's some objections, obviously, that naturally arise to this Christian assertion of the afterlife. Is how can we be sure there really is an afterlife? Because a lot's at stake, lots riding on it, right? We make decisions according to what's going to be happening then. But the second is this if, if we prove that there is an afterlife, and as I'm hoping to show you, there is such a place as heaven and hell, is the second objection is well, if there is such a place as heaven and hell, how can a loving God, whom we proclaim as Christians, send people to hell? And I want you to know the difficulty of what I'm dealing with tonight. I'm dealing with something called the soul, and it's immaterial. You can't measure it. You can't weigh it. You can't touch it. But it's there. And we're going to look at some evidences that point to the afterlife that aren't perfect until the last one I'm hoping to show you. But do show us that there is such a thing as life after death. So let's look at the first one. The first one is this. Is that there is a human longing. Sorry. Is that... There's a universal human obsession with eternity. You look at history, you look at any culture, any time, any space in the world, and you'll see that humanity has believed in this thing called the afterlife. Any civilization, you want to look at that, you want to examine it and study it, you'll notice that they all hold instinctively, intuitively to something more than this life. Now that's significant. There's almost this divinely infused awareness that this life is not all that there is. And it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, amazing book. It says, God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In other words, there's, there's an aspect to our makeup as being made in the image of God by this divine, eternal being, that there is instinctively a fingerprint on our lives of this Searching this awareness, this intuitive instinctiveness of there being something more than just this life. And that's the first clue. The second is this, is that there are a number of evidences of near-death experiences. And I've had personal ones as a pharmacist. I won't bore you with all of the, the accounts, but when I was doing ward rounds in my final year of pharmacy, some crazy things happened to those that were dying. My own family's experienced it. My mom, when my grandmother died, about the soul leaving the body and coming back in, there was a definite um, 
a spiritual encounter that happened there. And if you speak to pastors over the years, you have to go and attend people's deathbeds. It's quite a, quite a moment in a person's life. And if you chat to pastors who are much older than myself, they will tell you accounts of almost this intermediate state that happens of people as they leave their bodies. Some do it peacefully. J.C. Ryle, one of my heroes, said Christians particularly die well. People who don't have peace don't. And I can tell you now, there have been moments where the fear has been palpable as what is on the other side of the grave opens up to those who aren't ready. Now, you might say, well, Matt, that's really crazy because you're talking about people who are ill or sick. They're probably delirious. How can this be a scientific fact or evidence for the afterlife? Well, actually, scholars have done quite a lot of study into this. And they are Christian. J.P. Moreland and Gary Habermas said, from the kind of scientific and psychological testing that has been done, we see that we can place greater confidence in the evidential value of near-death experiences. These experiences cannot be ignored or slightly regarded. They play an important role in establishing support for life after death. Well, let's look at the third evidence. There's a third evidence of are having a sense of being made for more. And, and I know you resonate with this. And there's this aspect to our lives. And C.S. Lewis puts it so well. He says this. He says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Now, what I'm about to say might not resonate with you guys that are in high school. But have you noticed how old people get grumpier as they get older? Not so? Just, just, just hear me out here, older guys. You get, I'm grumpier than I was when I was 18 years old, right? Do you know why that happens? It's because when you start out in this life, and maybe who of you are applying to university next year? Aren't you writing this week? Exams? Well done. Extra award for you. But think about it. You guys are excited. High school, you're going to choose your life partner. You're going to choose the career that you, you're going to put your hand up for. You're going to make a difference in the world. Oh, I love that. There's this kind of naivety and, and joyful sense of, I'm going, to make, I'm going to be a world changer. I'm going to believe my dreams. By the time you reach 80, my friend, you are so cynical. Because when you look back on life, nobody's trustworthy. If you're women, all men are the same. And ultimately, what you realize is, what was a life of such promise, such promise, turns out to be empty. And I'm going to fast forward a moment. You know the Ecclesiastes, one of the greatest evangelistic books ever in the Bible written, says you get to a place in your life where you say, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Because what this guy did was, he said, right, I'm going to enjoy whatever I can on this earth. I'm going to get as high as I can. I'm going to get as trash as I can. I'm going to have as much sex as I can. I'm going to do everything that can feed my flesh. I'm going to have a whopper of a time. And what he finds is, it doesn't really help your body. In actual fact, this body gets smashed. Relationships get smashed. Pleasure crushes health. Pleasure crushes. Eventually, your, your brain so fried because it's been so smashed by all these chemicals. What you're left with is you realizing, actually, pleasure doesn't give me what I'm looking for. It actually, the higher I go, the deeper the down is. Not so? Nothing lasts. The second thing is he goes, well, now I better be 
bit more careful. I'm going to apply wisdom. And there's some of you here, I can see, you're very intelligent. You love to study philosophy. And you apply yourself to what is the meaning of this life. And what this Ecclesiastes dude finds is, is that knowledge is a terrible thing because the more you know, the more you ache. How many of you can't read the news anymore? How many of you can't actually take all of this philosophy? You know, Bertrand Russell is one of the greatest philosophers, secular philosophers of the previous century. He did a historical overview of philosophy. You know what this man came to say at the end of all of his studies? He said, we actually don't know anything. You know that philosophers will say every single philosophy after Plato is merely just a footnote of what he said. Is you start to realize the more you try and study this world, the more you realize, I just don't get it. And this, the third thing that is for me even more important, because this is the kind of culture we live in, and guys, you need to be careful of this, is this affection for money. And what this guy does is he builds an empire. He builds glorious buildings and castles. He does all of these amazing stuff, the kind of stuff that you want to write on and say, man, this guy has made it. But what he realizes on his deathbed is he realizes he has to hand all of this wealth to some idiot who never worked for it. He sacrificed his family. He sacrificed his friendships. He's given himself all for this work. And what does he realize at the end? He can't take a cent of it with him. Meaningless, my friends is we get a sense, and it comes out in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, is that this world, this world, is not our home. We can't seem to find ultimate purpose in it. We can't seem to find ultimate fulfillment in it. In actual fact, as a Christian, Paul picks this up in what C.S. Lewis says, I mean, Peter picks it up in what C.S. Lewis said, is we're foreigners, we're exiles. This is not the place where we're going to settle forever. But the fourth evidence is this is a, a human longing, a human longing for ultimate justice. Anyone felt like this? That there is something in this world that is wrong, that has to be put right. Forget the fact that you and I are the ones committing the unjust acts for the moment. But I'll put it to you, even when you hear people who don't even believe in God, there is this longing that the world would be put right. And one of the questions leveled at Christian faith and the Christian God, the God of the universe that we proclaim, is that how can a loving God permit this evil to persist? How can a loving God permit the rape of children or the abuse of children or, or, or this kind of genocidal acts or these brutal aspects of our, our human nature that come out because of sin? How can God permit that to continue? Well, my friend, he's not going to permit that to continue. There is going to come a day called Judgment Day when the scales are going to be put perfectly right. And it's coming. And for us, we long for it. The fifth evidence is, for me, also profound. And I can personally testify to this in my own life, if I think about it rationally. Is that there are earthly benefits to having an eternal perspective. And uh, Harold Koenig, he said, he's the professor at um, Duke University of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, and he says, after all the massive data has been analyzed, people who believe in life after death are not only healthier than their counterparts, but also less likely to suffer from stress and depression, less likely to attempt suicide, less vulnerable to a host of other ailments, and more likely to live longer. <laughs> and Dinesh D'Souza, who wrote the best-selling 
book, Life After Death, The Evidence, he writes, none of this is particularly surprising when you consider the nature of belief. The prospect of an afterlife provides a motive for morality and generosity because it's linked to cosmic justice. These data show that there are immense practical benefits to belief. You are likely to live longer and healthier, be happier in your marriage, and also make a greater contribution to your fellow man. But the greatest evidence of all tonight is the witness of Jesus Christ. And you might be surprised at me saying that. Well, I've got good reason to tonight. His is the most compelling evidence of all. And surely, out of all of history, this man has the credentials to be the one to tell us what's going to happen on the other side of the grave. This is the man who fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies. This is the man who did miraculous signs and wonders that his enemies could not refute. This is the man who was sinless in his life, that even on trial they could not pin any sin to him. This is the man who loved supremely on the cross, dying for our sins. And this is the man, historical fact, who has been resurrected from the dead. If you don't believe me, investigate the facts. You might not believe the Bible as an inspired word of God, but let me tell you, my friend, tonight this is the most trustworthy ancient document, heads and tails, historically reliable document that we have in all of history. And it points to irrefutable and extra-biblical writers point to irrefutable facts that this man, Jesus Christ, rose from the dead. And I've got to ask you tonight, what are you going to do with that? Because when Jesus Christ begins to speak about the afterlife, if he's risen from the dead, don't you think he's qualified to talk on it? Are you with me? Let me say to you tonight that Jesus was crystal clear on the teaching of heaven and hell. And if you're a skeptic tonight, I want you to investigate it. Investigate it. Be like Lee Strobel's. Don't be a guy in your armchair saying from our rational kind of perspective, Jesus might have risen from the dead. He might have, you know. No, no. Go and investigate the facts. Go to the documents. Go to the evidence that is there. People who do that, they come to faith in Jesus Christ. People who don't, they just scoff. And tonight Jesus says, in, I've just picked out a few teachings from John 14, verse 2 to 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And the greatest one I've left for last is Matthew 13, verse 41 to 43. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And he who has ears, let him hear. So, there's a lot of evidence to point to the afterlife. The highest of which is Jesus teaching himself. But the second part of that objection is if hell exists... Why would a loving God send people there? And that's what I want to tackle tonight and close with this last section. Well, there's an excellent part in a book called uh, Christians, Christians Hope No One Will Ask by Mark Mittelberg, and he does an outstanding job. Uh, 
sorry guys, just uh, checking something. Um, is if hell exists, why should a loving God send people there? And he deals with this quite, quite elegantly. But I, you might have never asked this before, but I just want to point it out because some people do. Is some Christians struggle to try and reconcile the difference between this loving God and Jesus teaching that people do go to hell. And so one, one question is saying, well, if hell exists, all right, Jesus taught him that, what if it's vacant? What if at the end God is just going to say to everybody, here's a ticket out and off you go to heaven? That would reconcile that there is such a place as hell, uh, but nobody's going to land up being there. Well, quickly, what is important to note is that Jesus clearly taught that many people would end up in hell. He did. And not only that, is he warns of judgment. If there was nothing to be fearful of, Jesus would never have to warn of it, right? And then it says here, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now, interestingly, Mark Wittelberg makes a good point. He says, in actual fact, there's a stronger argument of saying everybody will end up in hell rather than heaven. Why is that? Because we have a perfect God that's going to judge sin perfectly. We have a God who's given more than one chance to repent over and over. We have a God whose stuff we abuse, his planets. We have, we have fellow human beings that we abuse, we don't treat fairly. Is an actual fact the argument that most of us should rather go to hell than heaven is much stronger. And so... I won't go into Romans chapter 3, verse 10 to 12. But I will point out that there is definitely going to be a hell, and there will be people in it. Now, how does that reconcile this fact? That if there is a hell, and people are going to go to it, how does that God make, how does that make God a loving God? Why would a loving God send people to hell? Anybody asked that question here before? Well then, you're honest. Can I say, firstly, we do not believe that God sends people to hell. Scripture does not say that. May I point out first and foremost that it was never in God's original plan. Is that hell happened because mankind fell into something called sin. Hell did not exist. It was not in, its, in God's original plan. He hadn't some pre-worked-out plan that some would go to hell and some... No, no. In God's original plan, there was no such thing as hell. There was perfect relationship and perfect communion with God. But sin came into the world, starting with Lucifer, the Satan, and hell was created. And the amazing thing that we see is that in actual fact, far from God's specifically sending people to hell, is that we see that he sends Jesus to save. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Here it is. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. What John is saying is the world stands condemned already and God sends Jesus to save the world, not to condemn some to hell and to send some to heaven. 
In actual fact, the posture of God towards the world is one of wanting to save, wanting to say, I'm open, come, the way to me is made open through my son. Without Jesus, the world's condemned already. And because of God's rescue plan, there's hope for the world. Are you with me? Ah. Here we go on. This beautiful scripture, 1 Timothy 2, verse 3 to 6. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, this is the truth, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Christ's death on the cross was not just sufficient for some, it was sufficient for all. It was payment for sin with a capital S, praise God. And when Jesus came, it was a sacrifice for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And here we go in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9. The Lord oh, is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I love what Joe said in one sermon when he said, Joe, how old are you when you got saved? What year was that? 2005. He said, I'm so grateful Jesus didn't come before 2005 because he gave me an opportunity to repent. And this thing of Jesus taking so long to come back, it's a sign of grace, my friend. It's not a sign of judgment that he's waiting for men to repent and come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is the hard fact tonight is that people choose to go to hell. God does not send them there. Why do I say that? Well, Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, For the wages, the consequences of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's two things that we resist and that cause us end up to end up being in hell. Is this? Is one is we refuse to change our ways to a God who is sovereign and in full authority over everything. We persist in our sin. That's the first thing we do. We refuse to bow the knee. We refuse to come to him. And instead what we do is we say we are going to go this way instead of that way. We are going to resist what God has commanded. And because of that, we are under judgment, under condemnation. But the second is this, is that when this gift is offered to us in Jesus Christ, when salvation is offered to, the, to you or to me or to anybody, and says this is the means of salvation, forgiveness of sin, if we resist that, well, then we resist the means of grace. And the result is an eternal sentence of separation from God. And so, C.S. Lewis puts it so well. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thou will be done. And those to whom God says, thou will be done. So the question remains tonight. Matt, you've been speaking about those who've rejected the offer of Jesus Christ and willfully gone on in their own way. What about those who have never heard? Have you ever asked that question? What about those who've never heard about Jesus Christ? What about them? Is that fair? Do they go to hell because they never had an opportunity to hear the gospel? Well, I just wanted to throw, here, throw it in here tonight. Is In the modern situation, this is how profound the gospel has been in the world that we live in. One in eight, one in eight of every person on this globe is active in their faith 
in Jesus Christ. That is, that is just huge. And where the mission field, the third world, was the mission field, let me tell you now, it's sending missionaries to the West, which was the original birthplace of global missions. The world is saturated with the gospel. But what about those that have never been able to hear despite this? Well, Scripture's teaching is this, and I'm going to head for the landing strip here. Is that we all have to respond to a measure of light that is given us. Every human being is given a measure of light that reveals the fact that there is such a thing as God and Creator. And Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 20. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress, that's the word, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, clearly perceived, ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying, guys, this is the point of the Tough Question series, is that science points to the fact that there is such a thing as God. And when you look at the universe, if you look at the world around you, the complexity and diversity and grandeur of it, what you see is clearly science and history and creation pointing to a starting point that is beyond what has been made, an eternal, divine, all-powerful, all-knowing, almighty God. And because of this, because of this, no man or woman is without excuse because as they look at creation, they can see the evidence of this divine, powerful creator. Can I say to you this morning, this evening, We have proven, science has proven that this world has a beginning. And the facts are against those that say there is no such thing as God, that this is all random. No, no, my friends, something beyond time and matter and space had to be able to exist in order to create what we know as creation. And what Paul is saying here is there is enough evidence to say there is a God to be sought after and known simply by looking outside at the glory of of what you see. But you know what we do? Is we suppress that truth. We don't like as human beings this concept that we are held accountable to or under the authority of a God of heaven. And what we choose to do is we suppress the evidence and obvious nature of creation showing us that there is a creator. What we do is we live in such a way through pleasure, through our own pursuits, through our own self-centeredness, that's what sin is. We live in such a way that we, instead of looking to the God of creation for which all of us are made for, we think of it, this is all made for me. My friend, that is the epitome of sin, is that when humanity sees creation and the glory of God in it, they suppress the truth of an almighty God and say, I am the one for which all of this exists. And tonight you got to know I'm not talking about religion. Some of you might say, well, look at all these religions. They're trying to find God. No, 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 my friend. 
there is such a thing as dead religion. You know what religion is? It's simply a means of trying to placate our conscience so that we can get, as, get away with as much as possible. You know what religion is? Religion is an attempt to say, there is a God in heaven. Let me just do my duty. Let me just do enough so that I can give him this much of my life so I can enjoy the rest. No, what Paul is saying here, and he says in the very next Acts chapter 17, he says, this creation exists so that we might know God. This creator who made personality in relationships. I'm watching couples tonight. I'm watching friendships tonight. I'm friends with Sims. I rub shoulders with these people. So warm, so affectionate, so communicative, so, so incredibly loving. What do we see? We see this God expressing himself in creation, and yet we ignore him. I'm not talking about you doing your good deed or you being a Christian or a Muslim or a Islam. You can even have fake Christianity that will say, if I just do this much, well, I'll get away with that much. But what I'm talking about is, are you interested in knowing God? Are you interested in knowing the Creator, having an encounter of saying, He's a person, He's a personality, and my life is caught up with this amazing, creative, distinctive God that put all of me together to be enjoyed and for me to enjoy Him. No, no, I tell you what our problem is here tonight is we want to get away with as much of our lives as possible and the thought of being in a sovereign God who has sovereign rights over every aspect of my life, we hate. The fact that I'm accountable to this creator, we hate. And I'll tell you, it's even as bad in the Christian church. What we have done is we have substituted the glory of God in creation for services and music and even an interpretation of scripture when it's all about me. Let me tell you, this faith I'm proclaiming to you tonight is not that faith. This faith is not a parachute that you just pull out when you're feeling sick or tired or you're in some distress. This parachute does not exist. This faith is saying, I am totally under the authority of God. When last have you heard that? Because my friend, it's the truth. And our trouble is as human beings is we want to get away with as much as possible. We don't realize we exist for him. Do you believe that? Is your faith a sense of my entire life being caught up with a desire to please the God who reigns and rules over everything he's made? You need to pay attention tonight, Nate. Okay. Because I'm coming in for landing. And I want you to be totally clear about where I stand. Because these seven weeks are for nothing. Is if you can have a concept of God over a cup of coffee and hot chocolate, and that's where you stand. My friend, we're not talking about a concept or hypothesis. We're talking about the God of glory. And if you cannot move forward or even any further in your life than just discussing him as a philosophy or some sort of nice thing that can fit into a nice box, no, no, no. My friend, you're going to be in deep trouble. What we are proclaiming is a God who will call the world to account because he has every right to you. He has every right to you. And I say to you tonight, this is not the God to be trifled with. And might I say to you, when we speak about him, we are speaking about the one we are going to meet face to face. How does that reshape your life in what you see and how you live tonight? How does it reshape the way you see God, your Christian faith, your even reason for being here? You see, there are stories around the world. It is the most fascinating thing 
an encouraging thing. There are people in this world that have come to a place, they've realized Islam does not help them know God. That's what we're talking about. Fake Christianity does not help them know God. Hinduism does not help them know God. Buddhism does not help them know God. What you find are people around the world who are desperately hungry to know God and fake, false religions cannot give them to him. Give them to them. I'll tell you a story about Rashida. I met her at a church in Cape Town. Now, when you hear a girl by the name of Rashida, you know she was not born into a Christian family. I said, Rashida, how on earth did you come to a place like this? You know what she said to me? She said, Matt, I was desperate to know God. I couldn't find him in Islam. I went to, and I met the Dalai Lama personally. She flew to India, was part of a personal interview to try and find faith in God. Couldn't find him there. She went to Central America to a bunch of Indians. She lived in a jungle. This is a girl. To find God. And she said, you know when I found him was the moment when I found Jesus Christ. I was reading Mary Pierce. Any of you remember Mary Pierce, a tennis player? My aunt loved Mary Pierce. This beautiful lady with this long blonde hair. Cannonball shots. She said, I was reading it right here last night. I noticed something about Mary Pierce when I was watching on YouTube a highlight of the 2005 U.S. Tennis Open final. And she had this radiance about her. When it's time to interview, you know when they interviewed him at the end of the... And she said something. She said something at the end of the, the, the interview time. And she, she, she lost to Kim Clijsters. And she said, you know what, it's okay. I'll be back here if the Lord wills. And I said to myself, what did she just say? She, I read her, her testimony. Here's a lady who's won two Grand Slam titles, 16 WTA titles. She is famous. She's wealthy. She said, I was so desperately lost and unhappy. And she said, it was crazy. Here I have all this stuff, all of these achievements. And she found what she was looking for. When she met a friend called Linda Wilde, a U.S. pro tennis player, someone you've never heard of. I didn't know of her at all. And one night she came to a place where she submitted her life. And she said, Jesus, I want to repent of my sin and receive his Lord and Savior. She said her life changed. I knew Mary Pierce from 1995 when she won at Australian Open. The most uptight, seriously fearful, mentally fearful person. My dad always used to comment, she doesn't have a big match temperament. And I saw in 2005, this lady's life had changed. Now, this is not somebody who attended church. She was Catholic. She'd been to church many times before. This is not somebody who, this is somebody who found what she was looking for. She, came, she was looking after, she was looking for a relationship with God. She was looking to find her ultimate meaning in life. And she found it in the one whom God sent to represent him, Jesus Christ. And if you think coming to faith in Jesus is just a bunch of boring things you have to do on a Sunday, then live like something else on a Monday. That's not what we're talking about here. What's on offer is for you to be able to know God. Personally. And I'm speaking to many here who've been in church for most of their lives. 
I'll ask you the question. You might know church. You might know the songs. You might even know your Bible. Do you know God? Do you have a living inner witness that He's alive in you? I said this morning, this evening, that uh, my tone would be different. Friends, Scripture tells us what awaits us. You cannot cheat death. (laughs) Scripture tells us the way we live now. It's not just that moment when we cross into glory. What we choose to do and how we choose to live affects how we enter into that glory. And the whole purpose of this series is to help you see, unpack step by step by step. Might not have been as eloquently as what you liked, but tonight is where the, the tacky hits the tar, where you have to come to a place in your life where you ask yourself, what are you after? I ask you teenagers, what are you after in your life? What are you putting your hope on? Because as you move across to this side of the hall, you'll find that what you put your hope on gets less and less and less and less and less until you're left in this place of asking yourself the question. Why am I even here? And I say to you tonight, you're here to have a relationship with the God who made you. And the thing that separates you from Him is a thing called sin. It's in you and it's me and it's ugly. It's terrible. It's the thing that makes us so orientated in the opposite direction towards Him. And Jesus had to come to pay for that sin, to put it right so that we might come into the presence of God. I ask you tonight, do you know Jesus as Savior? You know what it means to to know Him as Savior? It means you actually recognize it's something that you need to be rescued from. He is the evidence of God's love for you. And there are many things you're going to leave here tonight and go and do. You're going to enjoy wonderful cups of hot chocolate and coffee. You're going to do lovely things. And life will carry on. But may I say to you tonight... If I had to ask you the question, if you die tonight, do you know where you're going? That is the biggest question. Do you know where you're going? Because until that's settled, nothing else really matters. Maybe you just need to read that scripture. There we go. Conclusions. There's evidence for the existence of the afterlife. The resurrection of resurrected Son of God, credible to do so, taught the existence of heaven and hell. And now there's a universal call to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. I don't mind if I've offended you tonight. I want you to think. I want you to think. These things matter. Don't worry about Matt Johnson. I want you to think about these things. They are the most important things. I'm going to end with this scripture. Paul is preaching in Acts chapter 17 to people who have got no context of Christ, no context of the gospel or church. It wasn't even around much by then. And this is what he says to Athens, the most philosophical, intellectual city in the, in the ancient world. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Let's pray.